Welcome, everybody, to Sippin' and Shippin'. I'm your host, Brian Weinstein. We'll be kicking it here every other Thursday, quenching your thirst for an insider's take to enhance your customer's experience. Grab your drink of choice, kick back. It's Sippin' and Shippin' time. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Sippin' and Shippin'. I'm your host, Brian Weinstein, and I'm here, as always, partner in crime, drinking buddy, Caitlin Postal. Hey, Brian, how are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. And I am here with Eric Gerard of Brunt Workwear. How are you today, Eric? Doing great. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. And we're we're actually very excited because this is a happy hour episode of Sippin' and Shippin'. As everyone knows, we we go back and forth. This could be a, a morning coffee or mid-afternoon coffee episode, but today just felt right for a happy hour episode. So Eric, give us a little bit of background on what you're drinking today. Uh, so I, I was going down the aisle deciding if I was going to go with the, you know, with my tried and true Bud Light, but decided to go local with, uh, with, uh, 617. So Lord Hobo is the local brewery here and they make a 617 for the area code for Boston. That happens to be 6.17% alcohol content. So keeping it, uh, you know, local where we're based. So yeah, uh, luckily it's not too strong, but it's, it's not the Bud Light that I'm used to. Yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. And uh, actually, I, I, as everybody knows, I'm big into tequila. So I'm, I'm always on tequila, tequila on the rocks. I do from time to time like a Miller Lite. But <laughs> for today's episode, uh, in, in honor of you being being up yep. in, the, in the New England area, we went with a Sam Adams Summer Ale. Awesome, I so love I'm, that. I'm assuming okay. this is out pretty early, or is this typically the time they come out? So it's, they, it's funny. They bring it out. They probably brought it out two months ago, which is way too early, Right. but like winter's out in, in October, like it's, you know, it's like fashion. They're out <laughs> getting out earlier and earlier. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good though. Cause you know what? Two months ago is when you start to need that taste of summer, exactly. yeah. something to kind of hold you over when you hit like the dog days of, of February. Exactly. It's yep, like Halloween yep. costumes, costumes in August. Yeah, exactly. You don't need them, but you kind of want it. Exactly. And who doesn't want to dress in a costume in August, right? And drink summer ale. <laughs> exactly. Let's get it. <laughs> I almost went with Sam Adams myself, but I was like, that's too obvious for a Boston person. So I went with the, the secretive one that no one, that you guys wouldn't even know of. And you probably can't even get outside of Boston. But, right. Uh, but so we hit both angles. Yeah, no, no, no. That's a, it's a good call, and and you know, I know you know we're from. Caitlin and I are both uh, from Jersey, yeah, uh, born and raised. So you know, I, and you're from originally from Connecticut, uh, okay. like two hours south uh, of Boston. Not the nice parts of Connecticut that you hear about. You know, yep. the, <laughs> the, the harder parts of Connecticut. And and you're and you're a Red Sox fan. You know, it's a funny story. I grew up a diehard Yankees fan. Okay. Hey. My dog was named Jeter. Okay. I didn't realize until I went to college in Boston how ironic it was that I actually, my dog was a Boston Terrier mm-hmm. named <laughs> Jeter after Derek Jeter. Right. Uh, once I, I, I get, after once I went off to college, I get kind of gave up on following baseball and after the Jeter era. Yeah. And so I wouldn't say I'm a diehard Sox fan. Obviously it's the only team I really even hear about or watch, but yep. you can't, you can't switch. You can't go 180 on from a Yankees fan to a Red Sox diehard. So. No, no, you, you definitely cannot. And I, I'm, I'm a diehard Mets fan. So that means, that the Red Sox are my second favorite team because I was raised, you know, you're either, uh, you know, you're a fan of the Mets or anybody playing the Yankees is the way it goes. Yeah. Right. So, I love it. 
So awesome. So we're here today to talk, you know, about your experience as an entrepreneur coming up and, and you know, your story in particular resonated with me. Uh, and I know we shared a little bit of this and we've, we've, we've spoken in the past. So I grew up in a, in a blue collar household. Um, you know, my, my father was in uh, a warehousing and shipping actually from, uh, you know, as far back as I remember. Uh, always on the uh, warehouse management side, or he was in production and things like that on for an apparel company. It was really more on the blue collar end of it. Uh, my parents didn't go to college. Um, and I know that was a little bit about your background too, right? I mean, tell us a little bit about, you know, where you grew up and, and, and your family. Yeah. So I grew up in a small town called Bristol, Connecticut. Um, which is uh, kind of in the middle of the state, uh, not too far outside of Hartford, um, an industrial town generally. The only, you know, there's two kind of, there's a really one claim to fame, which is it's the head global headquarters for ESPN. Yep. But, but when you live there, it actually means nothing. It's gated off. You can't even get it access in there. So it's just like a big bill. It's not like there's even an ESPN bar there. It's, yep. it's people work there. So, so yeah, and then grew up, you know, uh, same similar blue blue collar household. Father worked for Pratt and Whitney, which is the big airplane engine manufacturer in the state on the assembly line, and was usually working weird shifts, second or third shift through the night. But then during the day or after work, depending on the shift, was roofing for his friend's company. Um, and then as I started, as I started to get a little bit older at like fourteen, which is technically two years illegal at when at that time <laughs> I started roofing right gopher for those for those guys um carrying bundles I weighed like 93 pounds actually I couldn't even like carry the shingles up it was funny um and I'm terrified you take out a handful of shingles and just carry them up at a time <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly and so so yeah that was kind of you know that's how we how we grew up all my uh all my buddies went direct, who are still my best friends, they all went directly into the trades. College, um, my parents didn't go to college. Um, the, ta- the, the, the town generally is, traditionally was not, not a lot of people went off to college. Now there's, it's a little bit more, probably 50% or so, but when I was coming out, it was, you know, 25, 30% of people really went off to college. Most people went into the trades right away. Uh, yeah. right out of the- you know, it's funny. My town was in transition when we moved in. Actually, while I was growing up, it went from a, a, a blue collar town. And then there was a lot of blue collar people who maybe owned their own businesses, yep. whether yep. it was whether it was landscaping or building, construction, things like that. And, you know, my father had started a warehousing company. So he was sort of unwittingly an entrepreneur. He just decided actually his company closed down and he had a few people that he knew from the apparel industry who were like, Hey, you know, we'd really love to find a place so we don't have to warehouse ourselves. So he was like, you know what? Uh, he's like, I, he, he grabbed a couple thousand dollars that he scraped together and bought a pump jack and put down a month security deposit on a, on a facility and yeah. got started. And like, I remember being 11 years old and helping him like move out of a building yeah, and, and, yeah, and yeah. go into like, you know, we're and here we are removing stuff down an elevator because right? it was an elevator building and, and off to his own place. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, that was sort of that was how I witnessed on like being an entrepreneur. And I don't yeah. even think my father just said it. He's like, well, I have a chance to do this. He didn't really put, you know, much thought into it. But yeah, yeah, he yeah. Was, he's like the hardest working. He was one of the hardest working people I ever knew. He's, yeah, yeah. he's retired now, but uh, you know, it was, it was just something he did. And, and you know what, I, I, I'm sure you have the same thing for me. The work ethic is huge. Yep. 
Yeah. What I was taught there was a, was a, was a super big deal. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was the big thing is I grew, you know, uh, it's funny people, people like didn't even think I had a dad, like my dad was never around my mom and my mom worked, but she kind of worked from home. So people always thought like either a single, single mom or, and he was just working. He had weird shifts. So he was always, he couldn't be there for sports. And, um, and it was one of those things where it was like, it was, and, and, you know, he was hourly, so he didn't own his own company. So it was, it, it was it, for him to make more money, he had to put in more hours, right. Yep. And over time and get double time and, and all that. And and so it was the, the only way for him to, to take care of my two sisters and I, and with my mom being able to take care of us was just work more hours because he was an hourly worker. So that it was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, he wasn't around much, but it wasn't, um, I didn't really notice until later on where people were like, Oh, you got your, that's your dad. Like, oh <laughs> right. well, what do you mean? Of course yeah. it's my dad. Yeah. And, yeah. and then you realize, but you know what? It, you learn a lot about work ethic, like I mentioned. Right. And, and I think it puts a little bit of a chip on your shoulder. Right. And gives you like, you've got, you've got to get out there. You've got something to prove. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's the one thing like, uh, I mean, if anything, like I, I, I forget the quote, but it's like, uh, uh, hustle out, out, uh, outwork smarts when smarts don't, doesn't work hard or something like that. Yeah, and it yes. was like, I wasn't, I, I never really had a high IQ I, for my high school. I was, I was actually, I did pretty well for grades, but I, I wasn't, um, like I wasn't a high SAT score or just right. cerebral. I just worked really hard and studied flashcards and hammered stuff into my head. Yep. And, and I always knew like, I was kind of like behind the ball from like, not a, not an IQ overall, but like, I wasn't one of these brilliant people that you come across and you're like, you just are really smart. You kind of get it. And so the only way I was going to make up for it was just like working 20 times harder and longer. And, and, uh, and that's, and then, then the more experience you get then that, those two things together are even more powerful and it's just powerful combination. It, it is. And to be honest, it's, I, I sort of live by that, right? There's no one that will ever outwork me. Yeah, and, yep. and you know, and and then couple that with the experience. So, so you know, it 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 really is valuable to the whole to your whole process, right? Yeah. Especially when you're when you're driving and learning and soaking up things. And I found because maybe I didn't have that uh, more of a white collar upbringing that any time I got around it, I was soaking up everything like a sponge. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I didn't really have it until long after, you know, no one in my town was an entrepreneur. No one in my town, like there wasn't even any like teachers. My teachers were all great, but they, there was no one that like had really any of that white, like really sophisticated, like entrepreneurial stuff going on. It was only, it was only the only entrepreneurial stuff was people who own their kind of own businesses, but they were like spring factories in town was the most, the wealthiest kid in our high school was like, his grandfather owned the spring factory, which no longer exists, but like it was right. blue collar ownership basically is what it yes. was. Yep. Yeah. And that's what I saw a lot around by me until a little bit later on. And I was already gone and had gone off to college before there really was an influx of white collar into our town uh, in earnest. And then, and then the town's completely changed over now. It's, it's, it's most different. And those people that figure it out in the blue collar world, they're actually pretty, they're less likely to share because they've kind of figured out how to make it work. And the last thing they want is like to share their secret sauce. And so it's like the opposite of like someone telling you, Hey, here's what you need to focus on and do this. So like not telling you anything. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, so where, who was it or where was it in, in sort of your, your life and your early life? was, was really that first sort of mentor type of person that, that, 
that brought you into that world? Yeah, so I I always was interested in business. So I, right after I did the the roofing thing, that was when I started to work and earn money. And I was like, oh, this is great. I'm like super young, and I, it was I was making like less than minimum wage because I was technically illegal. But I was like, this is great. I then started a small landscaping business where some of my buddies in high school worked for me. But I like was terrible. Like I would underbid jobs, lose my shirt on it. But like I was like, well, the job's like eight hundred dollars. That's a lot of money. But like <laughs> I'd work like for like three bucks an hour. Cause like I'd be working for like an entire week. But so, so I cut my teeth there, but didn't lost and didn't really know exactly what I was doing. And then my mom basically was like, you know, my dad, my dad didn't go to college. She didn't go to college. She's like, you probably should like look at business or whatever. And, 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 uh, and so I ended up going off and touring the school up here in Massachusetts. It was called Babson and it's an entrepreneurial school almost everyone that goes there is the son or daughter of like the founder owner or CEO of like huge companies mm-hmm. or a lot of princes and princesses. Um, like I was in a dorm room my freshman year and like there was two princesses that lived <laughs> down the hall, which is like ridiculous. I didn't right. even know what that meant. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I got in, I got in cause I was like the most. What does like, that mean by the way? <laughs> They would come, they would show up to the, the dads would show up to school with like security to take the, it was just weird. Yeah. yeah. I, I got in uh, one, I worked hard, had some good, decent grades, but like, I was more of like all American, like kind of balanced probably the school, but also financial. I had a lot of financial aid. So yep. like I kind of hit the bill. Um, but so that, that was like the first, it like opened my eyes to like, Oh my God, this is like a totally different world. Like, I don't even know any what's going on here, like really hard at first. And then like two years in, I was just really social. So I became friends with a lot of those people. And it was like some, some kid's dad owns Chiquita banana. And I was like, how do you even do that? What does it mean? <laughs> um, they were like, it was crazy. And, and so, but there, that's kind of where I started to get, it's the, School is very small. Um, it's oh, you can only leave there with a degree with a degree in entrepreneurship, which is almost meaningless because like you, that's kind of a weird thing. You just either do it or you don't. But like um, like philosophy, yeah, like yeah a philosophy exactly. major, right? Yeah, <laughs> a little well, bit more lucrative, I think. Yeah. If you make it, if I you think, make it, we'll get there. And I, and I saw some of these kids in school, and we were like nineteen before nineteen. Some of these some of these kids that were in this tower that I wish I joined, I didn't like had businesses that were doing like 20, $30 million before we were like juniors. And they were like, I was like, this is just insane. Like, how do you even do that? Right. So, so Babson kind of showed me like, Hey, there's unlimited opportunity. I had no idea how to do it myself. It wasn't until, um, and I was from a, from a conservative background. So like my parents were like, you're going to, you need to go and be an accountant. Like, mm. right. You go to an accountant. That's like really safe. Your uncle was an accountant. He was very successful, all this stuff. But, but I was like not wired for, I was, so I ended up going to accounting right away really quickly. I was a terrible accountant. I have terrible ADHD. I can't sit behind a monitor doing yep. spreadsheets. Um, ended up basically through a bunch of conversations, people were like, you, you should go into sales and all this stuff. So I did a quick stint in sales, loved it, was a perfect fit for it, was killing it. There was a clear path to make a lot of money in enterprise sales and then got introduced to really, this was like the really cha- transformation was I got introduced to the founder and CEO of, at the time was Rula La, which is a big fashion flash sale sure. business. Oh, yeah. yep. Yep. Prior to that, he had started Lids, which is the baseball cap company store that is in every outlet mall and yep. mall, all that yep. stuff. 
Um, and so he had done that twice, sold lids, and then was starting real law. It was about a year and it was huge business. And I thought I was going to stay in sales for the rest of my life, but I was like, this is a chance I get to learn from like a serial entrepreneur, like firsthand. Um, I was super young. I was like 23 and it was to be his chief of staff, which is like his right-hand man to manage a lot of his relationships with everything, investors, board, yep. partnerships. And I was the least qualified for the job from everything on the, but I, I we just clicked. And I remember our, my interviews, I'm just like, I'll work harder than like anyone. That, and I saw the people I was interviewing against in the lobby and I was like, I'm just going to kill these people. Like, right. I'm just going to... And, and he's like, this kid's going to kill himself to like, keep this job. Yeah. And, and I did for four years, literally was like, you know, I was always like, I'll never let him come in the office before me and I'll yep. never leave before he does. And so I was always in before him and there after him and, yeah. and, and I do whatever I, I wasn't my job. To, he had an assistant, but like, I was always like, whatever he needs, if he needs me to go get coffee, I'll go get coffee. Like, and that wasn't really my job, but I was like, I'll do whatever it takes. Yeah. And it's funny because I, I think, you, you know, that the blue collar, you know, when you're, when you're around that and you've got like your parents, my parents, same way, right. It was take, go the safe route, right. It's a safe route. Right. So it's, it, which bucks what you're being taught when you're learning to be an entrepreneur. Right. right. And, you're, and you've yeah. got that desire because they're like, be the accountant, do what, whatever's going to be safe. You know, you've got to, you know, squirrel, squirrel away your nuts and make sure that you're, you know, you're there for a rainy day and there's no risk and everything's risk adverse. Um, but at the same time, it's gotta be exciting. You get around somebody who's a serial entrepreneur. And again, now on the flip side from the blue collar background, the work ethic is kick ass, right? You're not getting that from other people because, you know, you, you, you wanna be the hardest working man in showbiz, right? I mean, that's sort of the philosophy. Yep. And I knew I didn't have the skills really to have a seat at the table at that level. And so the only way I was going to keep the job was just be so create so much value that he couldn't like fire me. Basically it was like, right. he needed, <laughs> he to, like and at first it was Rocky. It was, it was a weird, cause he never had a shoe staff for, it was like, I was with him in everything, every call, every like interview, awkward interviews, firing people, hiring people, him in board meetings with his investors where they were given bad feedback. And then I just did everything I did. Just literally the first few months was just keep the job, yep. keep the job. And then, then I got, you know, started to add more value and uh, yeah, it was, it was wild. Um, Great exposure yeah. and way to capitalize yeah. on a once in a lifetime opportunity, right? Pivotal. Yeah. Sounds like it, it really was. Exactly. Exactly. So, so you went from there and obviously he was your first mentor. Yep. Yep. Right. And I mean, would you consider him a mentor or is it just somebody you learned what to do and what not to do from? So, so here, yeah, here's the thing. There's a, there's a saying, if, if, if someone has enough time to be your mentor, they're, they're not the right person. <laughs> and, and so he, we did not, and he, and he was very, he's very, he spits rocks. Like he was, he's very direct. Like there's no mincing words. Right. Like you do something wrong, you're going to know you do yeah. something good. You probably aren't going to hear anything. You do something great. You might get a pat on the back, but probably not. And so, um, so it wasn't really a mentorship as much as I, I learned from seeing, and that's actually how I learned. Like people are different. Yep. Um, the good news is I had access to all of his, e like, this is a weird thing, but like I was in his email cause I would respond to a lot of the CEO. I would manage the brands and stuff. So I got to see like how this serial entrepreneur like operated on a daily basis, dealt with a lot of crazy stuff coming in. And that was perfect for me. Like I would, I remember I'd, I, we'd get back after we'd have to go out to dinners at night, like 10 
and I then do the, I do the work from the day, but then I'd go and just read all the emails like outbound. I was like, all right, that's how you handle that situation. That's how you respond to that. That's how you deal with that. So it was a mentorship, but, but not from coaching as much as it was just absorbing. Yeah. yeah. Absorbing. Absorbing. Mirror. Observing. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. No, I agree with that. You know, I did, I did not have a mentor early on. I worked, I went, I went into the family business, right. As, as yep. you, you know, uh, I kind of yeah. knew that industry. I grew up around it. Like I said, I was helping my father move to a new facility when he, when I was 11 years old, you know, taking stuff down on a pallet jack, uh, down the, ele- the freight elevator and whatever. So yeah. I, I sort of learned from people I connected with along the way and, and, and you do a lot of observing and, and, you know, there's just as much value to watching people who are, com- who are completely doing things wrong. Right. You're right, completely right. doing it right. So, yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, that could be a person or a circumstance, but it's, it's a valuable lesson that you learn each step along the way. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I saw a lot and, and he's the first to admit I've learned, I saw a lot of mistakes, right. And, and, and saw like, Oh, that turned out that didn't work out so well. Like, right. so just as much good as you do, as you do bad. And, and, uh, yeah, I agree. It's, 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 uh, it's a unique way to learn it, but for the right fit, it's for the right person. It's like, it's for me, it was the only way Like I was going to read a book. I wasn't going to take a class that was going to teach me anything. It was right. like, I needed to go, I needed to go try it, fail, 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 and then figure out, okay, this is how it kind of works. Exactly. Exactly. So, so you, you had, you had your stint there and obviously that was a very valuable, uh, stint. And then, and then I think you went on to M Jemmy after that. Yeah. So, so we uh, breeze over this, but Rula sold to eBay. There was a transaction yeah. with eBay and, um, and so we stayed on for a little while. We all then parted ways, uh, after the, the transaction a few, few months later and then came back under a group. This is complicated, but it's called launch. And Ben had started launch. It was a okay. fund. It was a fund of capital, but instead of investing, it was, we were using that capital to start our own businesses. Right. And so this was still, this was six years ago. So I still was pretty like, it was fresh out of real law. I saw the first hand, but I hadn't done a lot of operating myself. The first business that launched started was M Jemmy. And okay. so, and so I actually had no interest in M Jemmy cause it was Italian luxury women's shoes that I had no interest in, but like two weeks before the business launched, there was a team in place, but things, marketing was a disaster. There was no email flow at all. Like no customers were gonna get emails. And they were like, can you step in and fix this? And I was like, okay, I guess, you know, I'll step in for a little while and be a good soldier, but like, I'm not interested in this. And then, then we brought on a CMO and hired out the marketing team. But Raven, I was like, all right, I'm out of this. Like I'm done with women's shoes. Ben was like, Hey, would you want to run the men's division or build out and, and run the men's division from Jimmy? And I was like, oh, that's an interesting experience. Like I still hadn't operated on my own cause I was always under his wing. So it was like the first time where I was going to own my own PL. but I yep. he was still the CEO of the business. So he kind of had oversight, but I could kind of like do things on my own. So I took that and spent two years or so, give or take a lot of time in Italy. Um, and, and then obviously in the U S building out that the men's division of the brand. And so similarly, uh, that was where I really cut my teeth on my own. Cause I was doing a lot of stuff on my own. He had oversight, but the women's business was a lion's share of the company. So I kind of had a lot of freedom and yeah, and did M Jemmy for about two years and, uh, knew I didn't want to do that long term. I didn't want to be like a, a shoe, an Italian shoe merchant. Um, and ended up hiring my replacement and then going back to launch. Okay. And, and I know you, you actually told a very funny story about, yeah, I think it was your, uh, 
was it your wedding party or was it a bachelor yeah, party? Bachelor, my bachelor party. Yeah. <laughs> I love this story. So, yeah. So I was, so that, that's a, this is, this is the original idea for what is now brunt, but this was, this was seven years ago. Now, six years ago, I was building M Jemmy. I was, it was my, uh, right before the year I was getting married. So my, and my wife loved that I was in living in Italy, basically a week or two a month. It was like pretty intense. Um, in shoe factories, fighting with the factory owners. And I came home from my bachelor party and brought all, all my buddies who are from Bristol, who are, are blue collar, you know, guys, blue collar yep. guys. We went up there to literally to ride ATVs, smoke cigars, drink beer and go on boats. <laughs> and so, so I brought all these shoes back from Italy, uh, prototypes from like the highest end fat Todd's factories and Gucci factories. They're all going to be thrown away. So I was giving them to my buddies. And they weren't wearing them. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> you mean they weren't wearing them on their ATVs? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, no. So you can ask after, afterwards, like, we're sitting on the deck or out on the boat. And I'm like, why aren't you guys wearing this? They're like, I don't like wear like dainty Italian loafers. I'm like, what do you mean? These are like Todd's driving loafers. People like kill for these things. And I'm like, yeah, no, like, where's my work boot? Right. And I was like, that's crazy. And that's at that point in Jimmy, I was starting to understand LT, like repeat purchases and stuff. And yeah. so, so they're like, no, I wear my work boots obviously Monday through Friday. And I'm like, well, what about the weekend? You don't change, you know, you don't put your weekend shoes on like the white collar folk do. And they're like, no, I wear my work boots. Like, I'm like, <laughs> right, right. I was like, oh my God. And they're, I'm like, do you, how often do you go through? They're like, oh, I don't know. Every six months I buy a new pair of boots. I'm like, gee, that's crazy. And they were like, you know what? Like, and one of my buddies, my buddy Skylar was like, he's like, dude, you've been spending all this time building, you know, Rulala, this fashion brand. Now I'm Jimmy. What, like, why don't you build a brand for us? Like, like, you, like stuff that we care about and we wear like work stuff. And, and I was like, oh, that's an interesting idea. And, and at the time I was like, well, their, their stuff's already so cheap. Like the direct to consumer model doesn't work. Cause you're not going to make a pan car pants, like 40 bucks. How are you going to make a pant for like $20? It's going to be like, that doesn't really apply. Right. But I was like intrigued. And so anyways, I shelved that. And that was like literally yeah, like seven years ago. And then, wow. and then we carried on with the trip and, 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 uh, yeah, it wasn't until like two years ago where that all came back out. Meanwhile, you got free market gap analysis right there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> over over probably a, a dozen or so beers, right? You just got free market gap analysis and six hundred pair, yeah. uh, six hundred dollar pair of yeah. loafers, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that they don't they still haven't worn. <laughs> right, right. So, so uh, meanwhile, I, you know, I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but you know, when I, when I first started, you know, working in, in, in the warehouses and doing stuff, you, you know, you wore the work boots that you were buying at, w were uh, a brand called Herman Survivor, which I'm, oh, yeah. uh, I'm not even sure they're still around. No, they, they, they were, they were the brand and then Walmart bought them and right. now, now they are the 69, $79 brand. Yep. However, number one, a brand by pairs sold in the U.S. Herman's Is that right? Okay. Uh, okay. Because it's in Walmart. It's and, then, Walmart. and then back at the, back then, it was also Timberland because Timberland was not actually the fashion brand. Yes. It was a true work boot, right? I mean, it was it was it was the real deal work boot. So you're buying Herman Survivors or or, or Timberland. Yep. Yep. But it, there really hasn't been a lot in that space, right? No. So. No. Those it's the, and those are the two ends. You have you have the the which is now Herman's Fire went through a transition. They used yep. to be the high end brand. Now they're not. They're actually 
there's more volume in actually $69 than $169. Right. There's less yep. dollar margin. But so there's Herman Survivor, there's Timberland. And then and then there there is another tier, which is the Red Wings and, and, mm. and those brands. But those are the price point alienates 90% of the country. Right. Yep. You cross $200 for a pair of boots that you're going to throw out in about six months. <laughs> like most people aren't up for that challenge. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. So, so at what point do you make the decision that you're going to push that forward? So I, I d- did M Jemmy and got a sense for, okay, how to, how to, how to do a part of the business, like the supply chain side, the merchandising side, there was a quick stint because it was crazy. I, I went and started another business for about three years called trade coffee, which is a totally, we got into it because the largest owner of coffee called JB Holdings, they own Pete's Coffee, Caribou Coffee, Keurig, Green Mountain, um, Krispy Kreme. They own everything under the sun. Basically right. came to us and said, you guys know how to start digital businesses. We own everything in coffee. What's the play? I went there and the only part of like the full spectrum that I didn't, there's two parts of, of, of like end to end e-commerce business that I don't, I wouldn't say I'm really deep on. There's the marketing side and there's like the true financial, like peanut, like deep financial modeling side. Yep. I always knew I was never going to be the modeling financial person, but the marketing side. Um, and I knew that was the key to success. I saw, I saw businesses in the MGM era and then beyond they either succeeded or failed based on how good their marketing was because it's the engine that powers it. Yep. Went to trade. Uh, we got the business live. Spent two years doing some crazy marketing stuff, like super growth hacky stuff that, like, using offshore teams and like really unique stuff that like no one's paying attention to. That really helped scale us early on. And was like, okay, I got a sense for marketing, like a really good marketing, and, and not not even like table stakes marketing, but like highly proprietary marketing stuff that I built there. Yep. And was like, okay, I've got that under the hood, and was like, okay. I'm tired, you know, I'm building all these businesses. I'm not super passionate about them. They're really good, smart, they're smart businesses. They make a lot of intellectual sense. There's business acumen behind them, but like, I don't really care about women's shoes. I don't really care that much about coffee. (laughs) Like I drink it, it's a drug for me. It's not, it's not like I love it. Right. And I was like, okay, I'm tired, you know, I'm ready to go do my own thing. And so I was like, it's time for me to, to take a swing. I, you know, I was like, this is the time I'm about to have a baby. You know, I'm not gonna be able to do this. Like I gotta go. Right. And so, um, so I quit and, and, uh, and went out, set out and said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to start my own company in 24 months from, you know, a year or two months from now, two years from now, I'm going to find out if I can't do it quickly and then I'll be back in the, you know, uh, but now's the, my last shot at trying to do it. Yep. And, 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 you know, it's interesting that you say that because there are a lot of companies out there, right. That are not, they're not really connected to the product, right? They did that. They did that market analysis. They found, they found a gap and they're really strong at marketing. So they just ran with it. They don't really care what the product was. Right. But they're really good at getting it out there and it, and it works. And, and, you know, and, and, and sort of the reason that we wanted to have you on the, on the show today was to talk about one, the passion, right? Cause it's, it's much different for you because you're, connected to this. Yep. Um, but then two, to talk a little bit too about that, the, the friction points. So now you've made that decision to move forward. You, you found the product. You're like, look, this is, I'm connected to this, right? I've got, I've got, I've got all my, all my boys are in this. This is what they do. And this is what they need. I've got a knowledge and I've got the, the background to, to launch this. What was like your first friction point? Like, where did you run into as you're, as you're going to launch first, a business? First friction point was when I told, when I told 
who are now some of my current investors and the early investors of, Hey, I want to go in, I want to go into the workwear market starting in work boots. And especially in the venture world and, and the more sophisticated folks, um, terrible idea. Uh, the customer has no money. The customer doesn't spend any money all, you know, uh, because they're so disconnected from the customer, you know, most of the cust- the core customer work does work for these people on their properties and, and all of those things. And they have no idea like they're not, they don't communicate. Um, and so it was, there was immediate, like, this could be the world's worst idea ever. Right. Right. <laughs> like, um, and I was like, no, like, and, and I, and I, I was pretty sure, but I wasn't yet like, I wasn't at the point where I could look like some of the most sophisticated investors in the country and tell them like, you're wrong. Like I'm right. 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 Uh, like now I'm pretty confident in doing that. But like two years ago, I was still pretty early in that. And, and, and I was like, maybe they know more than I, they've seen this before, but there was a lot of people that were like, this is a terrible idea. Terrible. Like uh, the markets, not like is it, the incumbents are going to always be there. It can't be disrupted. All that stuff. That was like the first big friction was like me having to build a business case around like, basically telling them why they were completely wrong for like almost every reason that they brought up. Right. Right. And it's probably, you know, when you're, when you're talking about investors, they probably don't have the same background as you. They don't necessarily have that connection to the market that you're, that you have. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They just assumed, I mean, the assumption was like that customer buys a pair of work boots and wears it for like three to four years. And, and one of them even said, he's like my landscaper, he comes to my house and like, his steel toe is showing out of his boot and and he's like so he's you know that that's a terrible business i go the difference is you know they thought that was like a four-year-old boot i'm like that's like that month that's four months old right little did they know all of those secrets that were being kept so close to the vest by the blue collar folks right and you knew that right they weren't sharing all of that yeah they just assume because you know if you wear if you wear like the italian loafers You'll get you get five years out of those shoes. Those those work boots look like that after four months, not yeah, four years. Exactly, exactly. Actually, and if they don't look like that after four or five months, and your boss gives you shit for not working hard enough, exactly, exactly, exactly. So, so was there a particular kind of breakthrough moment that where you finally got through to them on it? Yeah. So, so I kept going. I I, I spent my own money. It's funny. I spent. Um, like I hired designers. I was doing crazy stuff. Just like, I'm like, this is going to happen. And I, I hired some guy overseas to do sketches for me just to, to like get people excited about it. And then there was, um, there was one gentleman who was the CMO of one of the largest footwear companies for largest footwear brands in the world that, you know, if you think about like, it's somewhere between Nike, Adidas, Reebok, all those brands. He was, he was one of those. And I, it was like a lot, what late night and he came in, he was meeting with, with, with my investors for their own thing. And they were like, tell them about your idea. And I was like, I told him about, he's like, this is, this is brilliant. Take like modern technology, put it into boots. Like no one's done it. The old brands, like he kind of saw the vision and then a guy with that kind of caliber and credibility, like the entire room was like, okay, we'll invest. Right. Right. like if that guy sees it, like he knows, you know, he's made footwear with the latest technology before it's been out. And they were all of a sudden the entire, like everything turned after that. Just right. become friends with the one cool kid. It's fine. Everyone yeah, will follow. Exactly. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Hey. So right. did you have to spend, <laughs> did you spend a lot of time pitching him in advance of that meeting or was it sort of spontaneous? 
No, it was spontaneous. It was literally like, it was almost like a layer like, yeah, tell me about your, like, you know, your idea. And there was no, there was no, it was, it was just like, here's the con. And it wasn't even, I didn't have a deck or anything. I was just like, here's what I'm thinking. Like work boots are like the, the same as they were when I was leaving high school. Like they haven't changed. And, and he went up crazy and I was like, Oh my God, injection mold. You can do a bunch of this stuff and all this technology. It's not out there. I'm almost almost too far <laughs> like, like right like real um, in a little <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I, was like, I don't think our customer is gonna like that and he's become very he's also pretty far away from the core customer himself so right but at least understood like hey there's a market there and understood like that market's huge there's yep. way more blue collar workers than there are people buying $500 driving shoes. Yeah, 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 exactly. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. At what point did you decide to add another product type or was that always in the plan? So it was always in the plan. Um, the question was, was that going to be in year one, which we are, or was that going to be in year 10? Right. And so we weighed it heavily and what we didn't want to, which the historical brands, the hundred year old brands that have owned the space in either paint work pants or work boots or whatever are really from a brand perspective are known to be one thing. And they, maybe they happen to sell pants or such, but they're a boot company or they're, they're, a, they're a pant company. Now they're starting to sell boots, but like, they're not really a boot company and you wouldn't go there to buy boots. And so we knew we didn't want to wait too long to silo ourselves into being pegged as one thing. Right. Sure. And we thought part of like the disruption was we can be the best in class for, for, for more than one thing head to toe. So the, the bet was doing that earlier than later. Um, still, by the way, we're seven, we're live. We've been live for seven months. So most of the world, most of the country does not know who Brent Workwear is. Today. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. So, so we're still, we're coming out, you know, as all right, they, they've got a lot, you know, we lean heavy on boots, but we're going to, we're going to try to swing that pendulum back down because our pants just started chipping a few weeks ago. The, the reviews have been off the charts. Our hoodies is the same thing. So now we want to be kind of more known as a head to toe work, true workwear brand for not at, things they wear, literally the tools they wear. Not, we're not going to get into hard hats. We're not going to get into tools and hammers and even probably tool belts and stuff, but like the real apparel stuff that they're putting on in the morning before they leave the house. Yeah, right. the tools you wear, I the love pants, that. The pants, the pants, the you know, the, the, maybe maybe the heavy jumpers for the winter when you're working outside, yeah, things like that, right? So, I mean, is that like you going after like the Carhartts, the, those types of companies? Oh yeah, and the boot side, we're going after the biggest, right? So we're in and and we go after the we go after the biggest, but the highest quality, the biggest, because like you talked about Herman Survivor, I'm not I'm not trying to compete with the sixty nine dollar boot. That's a different right. customer. Yep, and that that there's a place for that, right? There's a customer that's like, hey, I'm going to buy a new pair every two months. And, but, but that works with my biweekly pay cycle and I can afford like, so that's a different psyche. I'm going after on the boot side, I'm going after the Red Wings, the Thoroughgoods, the Timberlands, like the highest end on the boot side. And on the apparel, the, um, the difference is actually had to, I had to go way above the, the biggest in the space, the Carhartts and, and, and the, the Dickies, so to speak, because it's just a different, there's a difference between the boots and the apparel, the, the boot yep. player try to go high end, the apparel people are actually trying to make their stuff as cheap as possible and yep. bring the price down with discounting sub $40. And so, um, our apparels is, 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 uh, almost for some people actually too expensive. Right. Um, but we always say we'll never sacrifice quality. We're always going to make the best product for the category, not luxury. We're not making like stuff that it's going to be, you know, you can get custom made boots. You can get right. you know, blah, blah, blah. But the highest end that we think you need to that needs to perform for the job that most of these guys and girls are doing, 
Yep. Right. And then, and then we price it as best as we can. And right. sometimes that's that's a crazy value. Sometimes it's even in the pants, for example, they're more expensive than they used to, but our pants should outlast three to five times as long as a, as a pair of the other brands because yep. the quality and the, the material and all that. Yeah. Sure. Yep. sure. Yep. And, and so, so now you've got this backing from launch. And, yep. and what does an organization like Launch do for you? I mean, what, 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 what's their support system for you? Yeah, so so they help early on, you know, they help with a lot of early introductions to a lot of the, because um, they helped with capital early on, but but yep. not, 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 we weren't going to ride off into the sunset with unlimited capital. Um, incredible introductions to an incredible network of highly sophisticated investors and and passionate investors that like love the, you know, we're either going to get on board with this category um, to a lot of credibility, uh, credibility as I was going out and cutting a lot of big deals, long-term deals with manufacturers and factories, being able to say, Hey, we're part of this group that that's done, built these companies and businesses versus, you know, me just saying, Hey, I, I think I'm going to sell a lot of boots. Do you want to, you know, take a chance right. on it? <laughs> yep. Um, and then, and then strategy as well on, you know, here's how you got to think about this. Here's, here's what we've done, right. Here's a lot of mistakes we've made. Here's, you know, uh, so like true advisory and, 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 and the folks at launch were, are, uh, were and still are on the, on my board of, uh, board of directors. So, yeah. so it's almost like an instant board, right? You, you instantly yeah. have a board yep. advisors, people bringing in a lot of value to the company. Yep. Um, but then it comes time and you've got to go out and get the real rounds of funding. Right. So mm-hmm. how, what did you, what did you have to do there to, to get in front of the right audience and obviously get, get the funding that you needed? So the, the process, that process started, which was, you know, I, I had a decent network from what I had developed over the past five years. So I, I kind of went out to everyone I knew and said, Hey, I'm doing this thing. There were some people that were like, not like, don't even understand what you're talking about. Like going talking to like blue collar worker, like right. that's not interested. So immediately didn't even waste my breath trying to convince someone of like, um, then there were people really strategic people that were like, wow, there's, there's, uh, you know, I know some of the biggest construction companies in the, in the country and in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and those were like, okay, they understand my customer. They employ my customer. They, they at least have an understanding and appreciation for them. So started to have some of those conversations, those things kind of hit up naturally, which is like, wow, this, this, like we get this, we get this product. And, and that was where I saw the most success, which was really strategic investors that were in the construction space because they understood like, most of them are actually buying the gear for their employees as right. in, in, and so like they understood like they're spending like over a thousand dollars a year on per employee on their boots yeah. their pants their sweatshirts so they're like well this is interesting and so so that was like the process which was i would cast a wide net talk to venture folks talk to private wealth folks and then talk to strategic people who understood the customer um and ended up going down the path of mostly strategic in the com- in the construction space because they understood it. And then yep. a few private folks who were just like the, you know, they love brands like Yeti and, and all these companies and were like, this could be, this could have some similar appeal and feeling to something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and what round of funding are you on if, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, we've gone through, uh, we've gone through our series a, um, okay. we, did it, we did it privately, uh, with, with the private strategic investors to keep it, just out of the limelight and quiet and, and focus more on the business. Um, but we've gone through, yeah, we've gone through essentially the seed funding phase and then, and then, and then have closed on our series a. So, 
you know, we haven't yet gotten to the stage where high growth, but the business business is working, the customer's loving the brand and the customer's loving the product. So we're now, all right, build the infrastructure, get the team in place, get all the systems worked out. And then the next phase will be, all right, go to the moon. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, you have to build that brand confidence, right? Because this is not a nice to have product for your customer. This yeah. is a have to have. This is to your point. Yeah. I know you keep, keep referring to it as a tool, but it really is. I mean, you, you, this is something that you rely on for comfort. You rely on for protection and, yeah. and you've got to live in summer, fall, winter, spring. I, I, and you know, it's important that you have the right, the right tools because you know, if you get injured on the job, you know, that's your livelihood right there. Right. And, and there, there's a lot there if, if, you know, and so you need that sort of protection so that that's a big deal to, to earn it, earn the trust and confidence. And you don't just kind of throw that out there and people try it once and say, they're going to move on. It's not that kind of crowd. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And if they try you once and they move on, your business falls apart because the, the e-commerce game is, is a game of coming back and buying more, not trying once and leaving you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a sale is one time earning a customer loyalty can be for life. Yep. Yep. That's awesome. So, so if you're, if you had any advice for, for, you know, someone who's coming up and has passion about a particular brand, it's a segment that they may know, um, you know, what would that advice be like as they're, as they're trying to, as they're trying to maybe raise, raise some interest in their brand or, or funding or whatever it is yeah. in, in, in their market? Yeah. I'd say the biggest thing is being, is being as authentic as possible to your, so like I have competitors, I have people in the space, but like, they're just smart business people that are trying to sell the construction workers. Mm -hmm. But like, I can see their, I can see how they market. I can see how they style it. I can see how they put the product, like their boots, their pants. I'm like, no one rolls their jeans up in the construction world. Like that, right. that's stupid. <laughs> like, it looks stupid. Right. Or, or, or like the boots, like, or like there's, so like, if you really know your customer, you really know your base, like being as authentic as possible to them is, is I, in, by the way, I'm seven months old. So who, who knows? Like I could be completely wrong, right? but, but like the customer is not stupid and you're not going to convince them. And I've seen brands get to scale and then tail down where they lose the credibility. And so it's being as incredibly authentic as possible. And either you have to be that you have to be the customer which, which I am not, it's not like I'm out on, I am on a lot of job sites by the way, every, almost every day, but I'm not out building frames. I'm not pouring concrete, but what I am doing is I'm talking to those people like every hour of the day. What do you like? What don't you like? What's uncomfortable? What's not uncomfortable? What do you hate? So I'm as close to the customer as anyone can get. And I feel like that's what's defensible about Brunt is like the CEO of Timberland is not on construction sites in, in a hole like I was yesterday. Like any of these, the Carhartt and same thing. Those guys are flying around. The teams are flying around. They're not, they're not as close. And I know what their real feedback is like so close yep. that um, so much. So we're in a shop. We're literally in a shop. We built a shop, a workshop that is now our office. Um, because we have people come by and, and they're bringing their trucks. They they're working on their stuff here. They're like, like we are as closely connected to the customer. And so my advice is, is one be incredibly authentic 
if you really don't care about the customer, you don't know the customer, good luck. Cause like, you're going to have people like me who really do care about the customer and know the customer that are going to just one up you. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you do just be, just be as authentic and, and true as possible. And, and the customer is going to appreciate it. Sometimes we make mistakes. We tell them, Hey, we screwed up. We got to fix this. We we're right now we're, you know, we're a few days behind the deliveries. We just let them know, Hey, we're, we're behind a few days. It's like, we wish we can control it, but it's the na- where we're at in the world right now. All right. Most people are like, okay, that's fine. Yeah. Um, and so truly like authentic and being truly authentic and as close to the core customer as possible. If you're not the core customer. Yep. Yep. No, absolutely. And I, I think it's really important because look, it's all about connection and marketing is great, but you have to have that connection. And, you know, Caitlin and I talk about, we, we avoid the shameless plugs, but I'm going to give you one here because I love this concept that you have that, you know, you're going to host these happy hours. You've got this product that, that you know, maybe returns whatever come back and, and and they need to be refurbed and and you're going to be hosting the these happy hours for for local folks in that area and i yep. hope by the way that you take this and expand upon this and go to different regions of the country yep yep um as you continue to grow but i think that's a great way to like bring a community yep and build yep. that community i think that's yep. i think that's awesome Yep. And we show them, you know, all the boots behind me, which aren't even out yet or released. We get to show them stuff that hasn't come out yet. They can try it on. They can weigh in on it. Like, I mean, when I say like our customer has developed our product, like it is, it's not like marketing BS. Like they're telling us like this doesn't work and then we'll make a tweak the next week. And then in the next run, it's like showing up. Like it's cra- like they're, they're actually impacting the brand. I'm yeah. Thinking. And changing yeah they're, they're changing the product that we're made. Like it's, it's kind of a joke. Like I say, like I have the easiest job in the world. I literally just let them tell us what we should make. Yep. And what better way, right? I mean, that's yeah, what keeps them like, coming back. Do it. Eric Gerard is from Brunt Workwear. You've been awesome. It's been really great to talk to you uh, again. I, I love, I love the story. I kind of feel, I, I, I kind of, I, I really relate to it. So for me, it was a, it was kind of a personal thing. So appreciate you coming on and, uh, and having a couple of beers with us. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Kaylin. Really appreciate it. Awesome conversation. Enjoyed it myself. Always a pleasure, Eric. Kaylin, you want to take us out? Sure. Thank you, everyone, for listening. You can subscribe at sippinandshipping.com or check us out on your favorite podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever works. Give us a thumbs up, subscribe. Love to have you guys here, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.